Legal Thoughts, Coleman Jackson, attorney and counselor at law. Welcome to Public Contracts Thoughts. My name is Coleman Jackson and I am an attorney at Coleman Jackson PC, a taxation, government contracts, litigation and immigration law firm based in Dallas, Texas. Our topic for today is what you must know about federal public contract modifications. Other members of Coleman Jackson PC, Liliana Gutierrez, litigation legal assistant, Raina Munoz, immigration legal assistant, and Myra Torres, public relations associate. On this Legal Thoughts podcast, our public relations associate, Myra Torres, will be asking the questions and I will be responding to her questions on this very important public contract topic. What you must know about federal public contract modifications. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mayra Torres, and I am the public relations associate at Coleman Jackson PC. Coleman Jackson PC is a law firm based right here in Dallas, Texas, representing clients from around the world in taxation, public contract litigation, and immigration law. Attorney, today we're discussing a very important topic with respects to government contracts modifications. During the life of any government contract, it may become necessary to alter the terms to incorporate new requirements or resolve problems that develop after contract award. The contracting officer must prepare and issue a contract modification to to modify the agreement. Could you give us a brief overview of government contract modification process? Good morning, Mara. You are absolutely correct. During the course of performance, a lot of things can occur that lead the parties to modify their original contractual arrangement. The Code of Federal Regulations, CFR, Federal Acquisition Regulations FAR, 48 CFR 43.102 provides that the only person authorized to modify a contract on behalf of the U.S. government is a contracting officer acting within the scope of the contracting officer's authority. The contracting officer's representative, COR, has no authority to execute any contract modifications. The COR may not obligate in any way the incurring of additional costs or or change in scope by the U.S. government or terminate for any cause the contractor's right to proceed. Generally, there must be consideration whenever a contract is modified. Consideration is the benefit each party confers upon the other for the modification. This is basic contract law, which says that without consideration, there is no enforceable contract. No official of the U.S. government may alter a contract to the prejudice of the U.S. government unless the U.S. government receives corresponding tangible contractual benefits. There is no such thing as a no-cost extension to the contract period of performance unless the extension benefits the U.S. government. If the U.S. government allows additional time for delivery, then the cost to the U.S. government is the right to delivery by the date originally agreed upon. The law requires the contract to provide consideration for the U.S. government giving up that right. Modifications to a contract affect the interests, rights, and obligations of two independent parties, the U.S. government and the contractor. The responsibility of the contracting officer is to preserve 
the integrity of the relationship between these two parties. The contracting officer reviews the action to determine whether it is consistent with the existing contract and to ensure that the equities of the existing relationship are preserved and will be continued when a modification is, is issued and negotiated. That's interesting, attorney. My next question is this one. What are some of the main categories or types of government contracting modifications? Mara, there are two major categories of public contract modifications. Number one, unilateral modifications are modifications not requiring contractor concurrence. Unilateral modifications are issued and signed solely by the contracting officer. Unilateral modifications are binding on the contractor. And two, bilateral modifications are modifications that are established by mutual agreement and signed by both the contractor and contracting officer. Note that all changes under commercial item contracts must be bilateral. Let me drill further down on what the legal term unilateral modifications means in federal public contract law. I want our audience to clearly understand what we are talking about here. First, the administrative change. An administrative change alters details that do not affect the substantive requirements provisions of the contract. For example, the name of the contracting officer's representative, COR, or the PAN office, telephone number, or funding code, or typographical mistake, correction. You can find discussions of administrative changes in FAR, Federal Acquisition Regulation, 48 CFR 43.201. It is U.S. government policy that all changes to a contract, whether or not the rights and obligations of the parties are affected, be communicated in writing to the contractor through a modification issued by the contracting officer. Number two. Now let's turn our attention to the legal term change order, change order. A change order is a written order from the contracting officer that directs the contractor to make changes to the contract as authorized by the Federal Acquisition Regulation FAR 48 CFR 52.243-4, changes clause of the contract pursuant to FAR 48 CFR 43.205. This clause, the changes clause, allows the U.S. government to alter the work to be performed without the consent of the contractor as long as the change is within the general scope of the contract. It is also obligates the contractor to perform the work consistent with the change order. Let me repeat, when the contracting officer issues to issues a change order, the contractor must proceed with the work as changed. Such changes may result in an appropriate upward or downward adjustment in the contract price, delivery schedule, or time for performance. If there is an increase in the cost of the work or the time for performance, the contractor must submit a claim for an equitable adjustment within 30 days and must do so prior to final payment. The contractor is neither to be disadvantaged nor given an unwarranted advantage as a result of the equitable adjustment. 
equitable adjustments are reflected in a subsequent bilateral modification. Disagreements as to the content of the change order and disagreements regarding the entitlement or quantum of the equitable adjustment resulting from the issuance of a change order are subject to settlement under the Federal Acquisition Regulation FAR 48 CFR 52.233-1, Disputes Clause. That's the Disputes Clause under the Federal Acquisition Regulations. Let me make absolutely clear here. Nothing in the Disputes Clause excuses the contractor from proceeding with the contract as changed. This power unique to US government contracts allows the contracting officers to alter performance without unnecessary interruption, delays, and to subsequently determine the appropriate contract adjustments, if any. And because of this fact, my next point is crucial for public contractors to understand. This is very important. It is generally best practice to negotiate changes to the contract and memorialize them through a bilateral modification rather than issuance of a change order and then expecting to negotiate a mutually acceptable equitable adjustment after the work has been done. At that point, the contractor has incurred the additional costs of performance and the agency has gotten modified performance consistent with the change order. Let us now talk about the use of options as alternatives to unilateral modifications and change orders in public contract law. Some contracts contain a clause that enables the US government to exercise an option, that is a unilateral right in a contract by which for a specified time, the US government may elect to purchase additional supplies or services called for by the contract, or may elect to extend the term of the contract. An option can be considered to be an outstanding offer from the contractor that the US government accepts exercising the option. In federal public contract law, options may be exercised only when it is determined that sufficient funds are available. The requirements covered by the option fulfill an existing need. The exercise of the option is most advantageous to the US government with price and other factors considered. And the option is consistent with the requirements and conditions of 48 CFR 5.000, unless specifically exempt by some provision of the federal acquisition regulations. And to exercise an option, the COR must initiate a procurement request in sufficient time to allow for processing of the action, generally with 60 days administrative lead time, although more time may be required depending upon the complexity of the option. The COR should review the option clause in the contract to discover how much lead time is required. For examples of what I'm talking about, it's right here. Review the following FOX sections, 48 CFR 52.217, regards the contract to discover how much lead time is required. See this section at section six, option for increased quantity. 
For option for increased quantity separately priced line item, see 48 CFR 52.217-7. See 48 CFR 52.217-8. Option to extend services. And see 48 CFR 52.217-9 for options to extend the term of the contract. These are just some of the examples. See these four sections for these examples. The option request should state the basis for determining that the requirement is still needed and any factors that justify exercise of the option. For example, Need for continuity of operation, cost of relocating U.S. government furnished property, things like this. The request must also include an approved fund citation to cover the estimated or actual cost of the option. And finally, could be alternative to unilateral mods and change orders. These options could be an alternative to these modifications that we talked about previously. Incremental funding and contracts conditional upon availability of funds. An incrementally funded contract is a contract in which the total work effort is performed over multiple time periods and funds are allotted to cover discernible phases of increments of performance. This funding method allows the contracting officer to award contracts for periods in excess of one year even though the total estimated amount of funds to be obligated for the contract is not available at the time of the contract award. Under certain circumstances, contract performance may be conditioned upon the availability of funds. Thanks for this overview. It all sounds pretty complex and requires public contractors to really know their way around the federal acquisition regulations or consult with someone who does. Attorney, during your discussions a while ago, you mentioned something about bilateral modifications. Talk to us a little bit about that. When are the federal public contract modifications considered to be bilateral? What does that legal term mean? That's an excellent question, Mara. The legal term bilateral contract modification it's defined in 48 CFR 43.103, bilateral contract modifications, commonly called supplemental agreements. That's what many, many people in the government contract area call these bilateral contract modifications, supplemental agreements. Supplemental agreements are signed by the contractor and contracting officer. Supplemental agreements constitute revisions that add additional work or revise the existing terms of the contract. Supplemental agreements are used to accomplish the following actions or goals. Provide an equitable adjustment when a change order has been issued pursuant to the change orders clause that we mentioned, talked about a few minutes ago. Provide U.S. government property under the Federal Acquisition Regulation 48 CFR 52.245-1, Government Property Clause, or other clauses or special provisions of the contract. And supplemental agreements also used to 
change the contract price, delivery schedule, quantity, or other contract terms. These SAEs are also used uh, to modify a contract when the modification is for work that is an inseparable part of the original acquisition. They're used to finalize this supplemental agreement when a contract has been terminated for convenience. Supplemental agreements are used in these cases by the U.S. government. And finally, supplemental agreements are used to permit the contractors to complete a contract after a non-excusable delay when the contractor assumes liability for actual damages. Attorney, thank you for this detailed explanation of the unilateral and bilateral modifications of federal public contracts. My next question deals with the legal term called new acquisition. Can you explain to us what this legal term means when you're using it in a federal public contract law? Sure, Mara. We're glad to explain what we mean when we use the term new acquisition in federal public contract law. Before initiating a modification, the contracting officer must determine if the proposed effort is within the scope of the existing contract or is a new acquisition, which is outside of the scope of the existing contract. A new requirement outside of the scope of the existing contract must be processed as a new acquisition. Contract scope means, in simple terms, that the contemplated change must be generally related to the work originally contracted for. For an example, if a public contract was awarded for the design and only the design of an automated information system, the contracting officer could not later require that the contract provide an installation of hardware. Whether or not a contemplated change is within or beyond the scope of a contract is often not clear. So the contracting officer's representative, COR, should discuss all proposed changes with the contracting officer or legal counsel, if necessary, to obtain a determination. Public contractors must likewise consult competent counsel, legal counsel, because this area can be riddled with disagreements, conflicts, and potential litigation, protracted litigation. When a new acquisition is contemplated, it should be subject to competition. The contracting officer must ensure that a proposed modification complies with the competition requirements of Federal Acquisition Regulation FAR 48 CFR 6.000 and the Department of State Acquisition Regulations, 48 CFR 606.302. A new acquisition cannot be awarded to a contractor simply because that contract has a current contract with the government. If the new requirement is to be awarded non-competitively, it must be justified as a non-competitive acquisition. Attorney, can you give us a brief description and explanation of what the legal term constructive change means in federal public contract law? Yes, indeed, I can, Mara. A constructive change is a situation that can be construed as having the effect of a change order. A constructive change arises when, by informal 
action or inaction by the U.S. government, the contractor's situation is so altered that the effect is as though a change order has been issued. That, in a nutshell, Myra, is what a constructive change in public contract law means. The following are, are the most common reasons for occurrence of constructive changes in public contracting. One, inadequate, latently defective specifications. Inadequate specifications. If a specification is defective in a reasonable review prior to preparation of the bid or proposal would not disclose the defect, the defect is latent, hidden. The work is made more difficult for the contractor than would be expected. Adding a work requirement in this accidental manner is tantamount to making the change to specifications and results in an obligation by the U.S. government to make the same equitable adjustment that would be made under the changes clause. The same holds true when defective specifications make performance impossible. Two, improperly interpreted specifications. If during the course of contract performance, questions arise concerning the meaning of the specifications or other contract terms, the contractor is required to inquire of the U.S. government as to the meaning. The U.S. government's interpretation may differ from that of the contractor. Under the disputes clause, the contractor must comply with any final decision of the contracting officer. Later, this disagreement may be subject to review by the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals or the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Three, overly strict inspection presumes that a delivery has been made. The contracting officer's representative, COR, the role of inspector rejects the item and requires corrections, which the contractor then makes. If the contractor later makes a claim for the additional work and is determined that the initial delivery was not defective, the adjustment will be under the principles of constructive change. Number four, improper technical direction. Improper technical direction usually is a result of COR, contracting, officer's representative, either not determining the limits of his or her authority or ignoring such limits. Contractors will often comply with improper orders for free services to maintain the goodwill of the COR. Let me just point out here that in all these examples I've just mentioned of constructive change, an equitable adjustment could be warranted. The amount of financial adjustment that should be negotiated under the equitable adjustment process is measured by cost, specifically. The contractor's increased or decreased costs resulting from the constructive change. Let it be clear also that the legal scope of equitable adjustment in public contract law includes, in addition to a cost of, or price adjustment, an equitable adjustment of profit or fee resulting from the constructive change. Bottom line, the law is attempting to make the contractor hold as a result of these constructive changes that we've been mentioning. The total amount of an equitable adjustment should be based upon a measure of the total cost impact upon the contractor resulting from the constructive change. Excellent. The public contract 
law, constructive change is clear now. Attorney, so how do public contractors avoid constructive changes in government contracts? To avoid constructive changes, the COR should exercise care and the contractor should routinely follow these due diligence review measures that I'm about to mention when entering into any federal public contract. One, prepare the work requirements and resulting contract with care to remove all ambiguities from the specifications. Take care to be specific when drafting modifications. Two, know the requirements of the contract. Erroneous interpretation of specifications and overly strict in inspections often result from a failure by the COR to know and understand the contract requirements. Three, keep proper records. Be especially careful to document interim and final inspections and identify specific problems in writing. And four, inspect and accept or reject work promptly to avoid claims that the contractor was delayed by the US government in action or that constructive acceptance has, has occurred. Now, both parties, note this, both parties should follow these guidelines when engaging in public contracting. These four guidelines that I just mentioned, both parties should likewise follow these type of guidelines and due diligence procedures in public contracting. Thank you for this comprehensive and informative presentation about what you must know about federal public contract modifications. Our listeners who want to hear more podcasts like this one should subscribe to our Legal Thought Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast, Spotify, or wherever they listen to their podcasts. You can follow our blogs by going onto our law firm's web page, which is www.cjacksonlaw.com. Everybody take care for now. Come back in about two weeks for more taxation, public contract litigation, and immigration legal thoughts from Coleman Jackson, PC. We are located right here in Dallas, Texas. Our address is 6060 North Central Expressway, Suite 620. Our zip code is 75206. If you guys wanna reach us, you can call us at 214-599-0431. Our Spanish line is 214-599-0432. We also take calls in Portuguese and that phone is 214-272-3100. This is the end of Legal Thoughts for now. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to inform you about what you must know about federal public contract modifications. If you want to see or hear more taxation, litigation, and immigration legal thoughts, from Coleman Jackson, PC, stay tuned. Watch for a new Legal Thoughts podcast in about two weeks and check out our law firm's website at www.cjacksonlaw.com to follow our blogs or our Law Watch videos. We are here in Dallas, Texas and want to inform, educate and encourage our communities on topics dealing with taxation, public contract litigation, and immigration. Until next time, take care.